Good morning, Northbrook. If you would like to open your Bibles to John chapter 4, that is where we will be today. Um, As I've had the privilege of preaching a few times over the last few years, I believe the first time was almost exactly three years ago now, uh, we've slowly been working our way through John, and we find ourselves in chapter 4 today. We're going to be looking at what is probably a familiar story to many of you, if not all of you. Um, in John chapter 4, what we see is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at a well in the region of Samaria. It's been three years that I've been preaching intermittently uh, when John's been gone. Um, for those in the men's Bible study, I'm sure that three years feels like I'm rushing through all of this. Um, In the men's Bible study, we were in John for somewhere around six to seven years as we went through the whole thing. Uh, So maybe we're right on pace there. Um, But it's been interesting in preparing this uh, for this different setting here in preaching God's word as opposed to in that men's Bible study. In preparing for today, quite honestly, I struggled a little bit with how to approach this. This is a lengthy passage that we're looking at today. We're going to be looking at the first 42 verses of John chapter 4. And now we're not going to dive into every detail there or we'd be here till supper time tonight and probably even longer than that as we tried to chase all the rabbit trails that we come across here. There's a lot in this and there are a lot of rabbit trails that we could go down and many of them are very much worth exploring and help inform the passage and inform the larger context of John's gospel. In fact, three years ago, uh, when I first preached here, I looked at one of those rabbit trails from this very passage as we examine what it means to worship in spirit and truth that's found in verses 19 through 24 of chapter 4 here. One of the difficulties with John's gospel in general, especially when doing it as a series of one-off sermons as opposed to a continuing, uh, ongoing week-after-week series, is figuring out how to stay focused on the main points of the passage and not get lost in the weeds of all of the details that he provides. Um, and that's, that's what I want to endeavor to do today, is try to avoid getting lost in the weeds of this passage. It's not to say those weeds are not important. It's not to say that what you can find there in examining those things closer is not of value, um, because it very much is, especially with some of these that I'll talk about a little bit today. But I want to not lose sight of the larger purpose of this passage in the context of John's gospel and what uh, the main points that John is trying to get across to his audience um, and to us as future hearers in reading this gospel passage. So, in the case of John's gospel... He is very helpful a lot of times um, in telling us why he's writing things. Uh, And for his gospel as a whole, he was very helpful. He is very intentional with the events and the details that he captures. And it all feeds into a single overarching purpose in this gospel. Uh, And so our understanding of all of the things that he captures in his gospel needs to flow out of what he states his purpose is. And that purpose is stated at the near the end of his gospel in chapter 20 verses 30 and 31, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John, in writing his gospel, is giving an eyewitness account of things that he himself experienced and saw in his time with Jesus. But he didn't simply cobble together a bunch of interesting stories from that time. But he he wasn't setting out to write a history of what happened with Jesus, the events that were part of Jesus' life. That wasn't his primary purpose. He had a plan with what he was writing. And for us to understand that gospel, we need to remember and understand the purpose that he wrote with. It's so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in that knowing, we would believe and have life in his name. So as I read through the first 42 verses of chapter 4 here, I want you to keep that purpose in mind and think about the ways in which this story shows us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through this. Now, I will acknowledge that 42 verses is a large chunk, particularly in a gospel this dense. But again, we're trying to capture the forest view of this passage this morning, looking at the larger picture to uh, get the feel for why John included this in the gospel to begin with. So let me start in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Chapter 4 begins with a change of scenery. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration in chapter 2, and that's where he cleanses the temple. And he stayed there past the end of the Passover feast, and during that time he was teaching and performing miracles or signs. In that time he had his nighttime encounter with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and after that he moved out of the city of Jerusalem and out into the Judean countryside where his disciples began baptizing people, much like John the Baptist and his disciples. As we pick up here in chapter 4, we see the transition from the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus that was talked about at the end of chapter 3, and that that transition is continuing. Jesus was now making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And that's drawing attention. The crowds are flocking to Jesus instead of John, and it's precisely because of this because of that fact that Jesus decides that it is now time to leave Judea. The popularity of Jesus' ministry is drawing attention from the Pharisees and the officials, and so Jesus is moving on to avoid that confrontation. There's a rabbit trail here already in verse 1 of John chapter 4 that we could go down of Jesus' knowledge and understanding of this and his avoiding of this confrontation and conflict with the Pharisees. It's something that we will come back to as we go through John, Lord willing, and we'll talk about on another day. All throughout John's gospel, it's very clear that Jesus, throughout his ministry, is both aware of and fully in control of the conflict that he has with the Pharisees. In fact, 
in chapter 5, he is the one who initiates the conflict with the Pharisees. He takes some very specific actions there to initiate the conflict that ultimately leads to his death. So Jesus is very much aware of and in control of this. And effectively, what we see here at the beginning of chapter 4 is that the time is not right for this yet. And we see this time and time again throughout uh, John's gospel. Again, as I said, it shows up in chapter uh, 5. In chapter 6, when he feeds the crowds of thousands with a miracle, uh, he perceives that they're ready to make him king. And he withdraws because that time is not right. And again, at the beginning of chapter 7, as the Feast of Booths is drawing near and he needs to go to Jerusalem to celebrate that, he deliberately waits. He doesn't go down with the crowds. He deliberately waits and almost sneaks into Jerusalem to avoid the stir that would be made by him coming at the beginning of the feast. Again, very intentional and very aware of his effect and the status of that conflict that will ultimately lead to his death. That's what's going on here at the very beginning, is he is he's moving away to avoid raising this conflict at this point. It's not time yet. His ministry is still very, very early. In fact, this portion of John is taking place before the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even get to the ministry of Jesus. Their record of his ministry starts in Galilee after this story takes place. It's Jesus recognizing that the time isn't right to have a public conflict with the Pharisees. And so he gets out of town. He leaves Judea. In verse 2, John throws in this parenthetical comment. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. There's another rabbit trail there that we won't go down. But what John is highlighting there is that there's a difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. And there are a lot of implications that you can draw out from that fact, that Jesus didn't baptize people at this time. But we don't have time for that today. Focus on the forest. Make some notes of these. Go back and look at them later. We'll we'll focus on the larger picture today. So Jesus is heading back to Galilee. That's where he started back in chapter 2. That's where the wedding at Cana was. He moved down to Jerusalem into the Judean countryside and is now moving back north to Galilee. And the default route back to there was to pass through the region of Samaria, which was directly north of Judea and Jerusalem. Now, there are some who have held that the strictest of the Jews, um, the strictest sects of the Pharisees, would travel around Samaria not even wanting to defile themselves by setting foot in it, but there's not a whole lot of evidence to back that idea up. This path through Samaria was the normal and standard standard traveling path from Jerusalem and Judea in the south up to Galilee and the region surrounding it in the north. So it was a common travel route that the Jews would use in moving between these regions. Samaria, as a region is what is left of the northern kingdom of Israel. At the time of this story, at the time of the gospel, Samaria was part of the Roman district of Judea. The Rome lumped them together into a single district, and they were governed as one district called Judea. But in the minds of the people, both Jews and Samaritans alike, it was a very separate and distinct region. There was a lot of animosity 
between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the reasons why are a fairly integral and important part of this story. So it's worth looking at a little bit of the biblical history behind Samaria. This is one of those rabbit trails or one of those trees in the forest that we will explore a bit today as we go through this. So the kingdom of Israel, the united kingdom of Israel, was originally founded with God as its king. It was a theocracy. God was the one who ruled them. But we see in First in Samuel that the people wanted their own king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. This is something that God himself anticipated and, of course, something that God himself planned. And so God allows this. Of course, it doesn't quite go as the people wanted or expected. Their first king was Saul. That's, that king did not go so well for them. A lot of strife, a lot of difficulty, and in the end, his, his rule and his reign fails and his line ends. But David, as the chosen king, the anointed king who follows him, certainly had some up and downs, but was generally very good. Following him, his son Solomon started incredibly well. Um, and rose the kingdom of Israel to its greatest heights as far as influence and wealth and power, but ultimately ended incredibly poorly. So poorly that this united kingdom split into two after the death of Solomon because of the conflict among the tribes of Israel. You had the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, forming their own kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital, and they become the Jews and the other ten tribes tribes making up the northern kingdom. There's a long line of kings in that northern kingdom, and the sixth of those was a man named Omri. He is the one who named their capital Samaria, and that's the name that came to be synonymous with the entire northern kingdom and with that whole region going forward. Now, the people of the northern kingdom were ultimately defeated and brought into exile by the Assyrians as a judgment from God about 135 years before the southern kingdom of Judah suffered nearly identical fate at the hands of the Babylonians. For the northern kingdom, that judgment was primarily against their idolatry, which manifested itself in a myriad of ways. And that idolatry was led by an unbroken series of 19 wicked and idolatrous kings. There was never a good king in the northern kingdom. As you read the records of the kings of the northern and the southern kingdom, when you read about Judah, there'll be one who did not walk in the way of his fathers, as they say, and who turns the people back to God, and then there will be one who fails and falls, and turns the people back to idolatry. And there's this back and forth that happens in the kingdom of Judah. In the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, that turning back to God never happens. There are 19 kings, and they are all described in the same kind of way that they all followed in the ways of their fathers. And they led the people further and further and further down this road of idolatry. Failed as kings. You read through that history in First and Second Kings, it's honestly somewhat depressing. It's very clear how the sins of the previous kings continue into their sons or their successors if, they, if their line was ended. So the sin of the northern kingdom was very great, and there was never at any point in their history a turn to repentance on a national scale like was seen in Judah several times prior to their exile. In the exile of the northern kingdom, 
the best and the brightest of that kingdom were deported to the Assyrian capital, and Assyria brought in their own people to govern and to settle this defeated kingdom. So you have non-Israelites coming into the kingdom, and they intermarry with the Israelites who remained, and of course brought their own systems of worship and their own gods with them as well. And this led to a very blended approach to the worship of God that looked very different than the worship of the Jews. For a start, ultimately, the Samaritans would end up only accepting the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as God's word. Everything beyond that that the Jewish people accepted as the word of God was not accepted by the Samaritans. That means things like the establishment of Jerusalem, the establishment of David as the king of God. All of those things were not part of the basis of the Samaritan faith. It was only those first five books. All of the writings, all of the prophets were not God's word. And so Jerusalem and the southern kingdom was not the center of worship. It was not the center of God's redemptive plan in their mind. They ended up building their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is very near where this story is taking place. After Jerusalem was rebuilt, and that temple ultimately ended up getting destroyed about 100 years before the time of Christ. But this mountain is still very much this was still very much the center and the focus of their worship and their sacrificial system. They believed that it was the place that God had chosen as His dwelling place on earth, not Jerusalem. So, from the Jewish perspective, in the Jewish mindset, the people of the Southern Kingdom, the Samaritans were political rebels who had broken off from the true kingdom of God. They were racial half-breeds. They were no longer Israelites in their mind. They were no longer sons of Abraham because their blood had been so contaminated with intermarriage. And they were a people that had first abandoned and then twisted the worship of the true God. So for many Jews, particularly the ultra-Orthodox types like the Pharisees, a Samaritan was actually worse than a Gentile. A Gentile, at least, was never one of the people of God. Didn't make them good, but they were never one of the people of God. In the Samaritans, you had someone who had been the people of God, but they had walked away from that, and now were some sort of half-breed that had corrupted the worship of God, and so they were to be treated in that way, as a half-breed, as a less-than. They were the lowest of the low in the mind of many of the Jews. Interestingly, as a little bit of a side note, perhaps another rabbit trail, that background of understanding that relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans is really helpful for understanding another story in another gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And understanding why that story isn't just a heartwarming tale of how to do good, but ultimately was Jesus delivering a fairly hefty slap to the face of the priests and the Levites and the Jewish leadership who were hearing him. Because it's the priest and the Levite in that story who fail to act, who fail to do good, and it's the Samaritan who's the one that does good. So it's into that context that Jesus arrives at the Samaritan town of Sychar. This town is roughly 30 miles north of Jerusalem, so a fairly lengthy journey when you're walking on foot. 
Jesus is tired, he's weary, dirty, and dusty, and undoubtedly hot in the middle of the day. Uh, it says that he arrives at the sixth hour, which would be about noon. Six hours from dawn is what that signifies. So here he sits at this well and has an extended conversation with a Samaritan woman. It is very difficult to overstate the taboos that are being broken by Jesus as he engages in this conversation. We already discussed how the Jews in general felt towards the Samaritans, but the fact that this is a Samaritan woman adds another layer to it. A few decades after this time, the Jewish leaders would codify a law in the Jewish Mishnah. The Mishnah is effectively a writing down of the Jewish rabbinical oral tradition. And what they wrote down reflected a long-standing tradition amongst the Jewish rabbis and amongst the Jewish people. And it effectively said, Samaritan girls are considered menstruating women from the time they lie in their cradle. Now, that's a very strange statement to our ears. But there's something very significant being said in that. The fact that it calls them out as menstruating women means that they are ceremonially ceremonially unclean, perpetually, forever, and that there is no way for that to be changed. That's what the Jewish rabbis are saying in this. There's a very low view of the Samaritans in general and a low view of Samaritan women in this culture. Women in general tended to have a lower place within Jewish society. Um, If you look at some of the ultra-Orthodox Jews, there were some who would not even speak to women because of the possibility of uh, defilement or um, impure thoughts or uncleanness that would come upon them in even speaking with women. So there is a very low view here that carries over especially for the Samaritan culture and the Samaritan women. We have to remember that effect of uncleanness under the law. When something is declared unclean under the law, it was isolated. It was cut off from everything else until that impurity could be dealt with because uncleanness spreads. Coming into contact with anything that's unclean makes you unclean as well. And depending on the severity of what that was, the conditions that led to it, it could lead to isolation from others, from the community, from the nation, until that could be dealt with and you could be made ceremonially pure again. What the rabbis were essentially saying about the Samaritans is that Samaritans in general and women in particular were always unclean. They were outcasts, they were to be shunned, they were to be avoided. So for a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, to be engaging in conversation with a Samaritan woman is a massive breach of protocol in the culture at the time. And not just speaking with her, he asked for water from her. Asked her to draw water and give him water. There's something very particular about the, uh, the eating with someone. Um, the Jews often would not eat in the houses of Gentiles. Uh, this becomes an issue as you get into Acts. Um, and the, in the early church, and the, the 
the Jew, the Jews having issues with the Gentiles coming into the church and eating with the Gentiles and things of that nature, um, it becomes a big deal. And, and it's, it's the same kind of thing even more so for the Samaritans. So to have any kind of interaction that involves food or drink or passing a cup, sharing a cup, anything like that, would be passing on this uncleanness. And so it's not something that the Jewish people would do. And yet it's what Jesus does. And even more than this being a Samaritan woman, it becomes clear as we go through the passage that this is a woman who is likely somewhat ostracized among her own people. Jesus comes to this well at noon, and this is when the woman is coming to the well. Generally speaking, women in this culture would come to the wells as groups. They would come early in the morning or late in the evening, in the cooler hours of the day to avoid the heat. But this woman is coming alone to the well at noon. And as Jesus engages her and the conversation unfolds, we learn that there's a past and present of sexual sin that likely is what led to her being ostracized. The details exactly of her five husbands isn't explained, but all would have either likely died or divorced her. Jewish tradition, while technically legally permitting extensive remarriage like this, severely frowned upon anything beyond three marriages. And certainly her current non-marriage relationship with the man who is not her husband would make her taboo to both Jew and Samaritan alike. So this woman is hitting all the levels of taboo within Jewish culture, Jewish society. This is not someone that a rabbi would normally be speaking with. Jesus is shattering the taboos of the culture. Under Jewish thought and convention, he should not be having this conversation. Under Jewish thought and convention, this woman was unclean and beyond redemption. In fact, Jesus would have been making himself unclean just by speaking with her, and certainly by accepting water from her hand. You see a glimpse of this when his disciples return. It says that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. That was the part that they marveled at. This is an amazingly understated statement for them. Now, they don't confront him. This was their rabbi. They're not going to call him out. He's the one teaching them. But it certainly and undoubtedly confused them. They were witnessing something that they had not ever seen or heard of, and it flew in the face of what they knew and what they had been taught. As I said, many Jews wouldn't share a meal or even enter the house of a Gentile much less a Samaritan, but Jesus here is asking for water from her and engaged in a lengthy conversation. When John says in verse 9, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, it's literally Jews have nothing in common with Samaritans. They share nothing with them. They avoid interaction with them. That's what he's getting at with that statement. So the idea of a shared cup, accepting any kind of water from them would be an impossible thing. Jesus even shocks her in engaging with her. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She gets that this is strange and unusual. Now, as we look at the details of this extended conversation, 
find all sorts of rabbit trails that lead all over the place. And these are really worth following. First, the first and foremost, one of the major ones in this passage is this trail of the living water that Jesus offers. That term, living water, or water of life, or water that gives life, uh, is a loaded term throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this tying of water to life and the salvation of God is a fascinating study that really informs this gospel. It's something we don't have time to embark on this morning. I'll just say, in brief, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, virtually all of the prophets have passages indicating this living water or life-giving water as an integral part of the New Testament promises. Whether in the promise of salvation and cleansing or the eschatological promises of the kingdom to come, the new heavens, the new earth that will be established. In John 7, Jesus ties this idea, well, John ties this idea directly to the giving and the coming of the Holy Spirit as well. The important thing to walk away from right now, at least, is that when Jesus is talking about living water, this is a term and an idea integrally, in, intimately tied to the idea of salvation. So this is fundamentally a gospel conversation that Jesus is having with this woman. He is extending an offer, not of water per se, but of salvation. That is what he is calling her to. It's an offer of salvation rooted in those New new Covenant promises that are found in the Old Testament scriptures. And of course, as we saw with Nicodemus, and as we will see time and time again in John's Gospel, the woman doesn't understand. She's focused on the physical water of the well rather than the spiritual water of life that Jesus is offering. As the conversation progresses, Jesus mentions this past of hers, the five husbands she has, and the one that she has now is not her husband. In this, Jesus is displaying his sovereign power, his sovereign knowledge, by revealing unknowable details about this woman and her history, things that she had not shared and appears was not wanting to share in her answer to him. When she says, I have no husband, he says, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. He reveals this in a very simple, matter-of-fact way. He's not condemning her with these words. That's not the purpose of this, although I'm sure there was conviction felt. He mentions it first to reveal a glimpse of his divine origin. In fact, the woman's response to hearing this out of his mouth is saying, I perceive that you are a prophet. Perceive that you are someone from God. You have supernatural knowledge that is unexpected. But second, he's revealing this, and in revealing it, he's saying, I know who you truly are. And I am engaging with you anyway. He knows all about her. He knows her past. He knows the things that she was not willing to share. And he reveals that in this statement. But this is in the midst of an intimate and deep conversation that has been ongoing and will continue after this. He's saying, I know you. I am treating you differently 
than your own people are treating you. So this woman realizes there's something special about him after this. And so she brings up the heart of the Jewish-Samaritan divide, the worship of God. Again, we don't have time to dive into all the details of Jesus' response. As I said, there was a sermon three years ago I did on, this very, on that very passage. It's on our website. Go check it out. What I want you to see right now is what he says in verse 22. Jesus straight out says to her that the Samaritans are wrong and that the Jews are right at least when it comes to the worship of God. He says, you worship what you do not know. He tells her the Samaritans do not know God. We worship, we the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews are the people of God, the people through whom God's redemptive plan has been taking place all throughout history once that kingdom split. He's effectively saying the Samaritans are wrong. But that statement is made in the middle of an invitation and a promise that even the right way of the Jews was about to change. That it was going to be supplanted by something better that she, even as a Samaritan, could participate in. That God was looking for true worshipers. He was seeking those who would worship him in spirit and truth. And his implication in this is that this is not limited to the Jews. That this goes beyond that. And the divides that separate the Jews from the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and everyone else. So he calls out her sin without condemning her. He tells her that she and her people are wrong. Oh, the horror of telling her that she's wrong. She says, you don't know God. And yet this woman stays to hear everything he says. She is captivated by all that he says. And he follows up that you don't know God statement with the call to worship in spirit and truth. You don't know God, but you can. God is seeking people to worship him even now. And so her conclusion from all of this is that this may very well be the Messiah. And so he unequivocally reveals himself as such in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. That is the clearest statement out of the mouth of Jesus in John's gospel that he is the Messiah. There's nowhere else in here in John's gospel where he is this explicitly clear that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Not to say that Jesus never said it in his ministry, but in John's gospel, this is the only place that it appears where Jesus explicitly makes this claim. And he does it to a Samaritan woman. Now this idea of of Messiah, as we tend to think of it and understand it, is a decidedly Jewish concept, a decidedly Jewish idea. And it's described and it's built upon throughout all of the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, most of which the Samaritans rejected. But... The idea of Messiah, of this one who would come, finds its origin in the Pentateuch. You can see it in the seed of Eve that will crush the serpent's head. Later on, you can see it in a prophet like Moses who would come. 
And there's many other places in between where there are glimpses of this Messiah to come. For the Samaritans, that prophet of Moses was what they would view as Messiah. They would use the term Taheb, which literally means the restorer or the one who returns. And their idea of what that Messiah was, was fundamentally a teacher, a lawgiver, like Moses, one who would explain things for them. That's why she says, when Messiah, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It's that teacher role that the Samaritans expected. Jesus claims that as his own. That Samaritan understanding of who Messiah is may be incomplete, but Jesus is rightly saying that he is the prophet like Moses, who was promised. Just as he wasn't exactly the king of Messiah that the Jews were expecting, because of their imperfect understanding. He's not quite the Messiah that the Samaritans are expecting either. But he is still the Messiah. Again, as I said, nowhere else in John's Gospel does he make this bold and unambiguous claim. It's only to this Samaritan woman he never says this directly to the Jews in this Gospel. And it's that clear and unambiguous message that sends this woman back to, their, back to her city. John specifically calls out that she left her water jar. Her whole purpose in coming to the well was to get water. She left it there. This became all-consuming. This was the most important thing now. She tells everyone she can find about the encounter that she's had, and they all go out to Jesus. They see and hear for themselves. And what do they hear and what do they learn from this? On verse 42, at the very end of our passage, they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They are so amazed by Jesus, in fact, that they ask him to stay so they can hear more, and he does. For two days, he teaches this incredibly receptive audience, a far more receptive one than you will find anywhere else in this gospel, excepting perhaps the 12 disciples. The confession of these people indicates that this isn't about teaching or knowledge anymore. They understand more fully as a result of hearing Jesus who he truly is. And there's every indication that dozens or hundreds of people in this area become true followers of Jesus as a result of this encounter. So that's the outline of the story laid out. We took some brief looks at some rabbit trails as we passed by. But the question I want to focus on this morning and hopefully answer is why is this story here? Why is it that John includes it in his gospel? How does that feed into his stated purpose in writing it? Obviously, it's a story about belief. It's a very evangelistic story with Jesus himself as the evangelist, and there's a bountiful harvest of people responding in faith to the message he proclaims. But there's a little bit more going on than that. John is very purposeful, and he wants us to see and understand something about belief itself with the inclusion of this story. I think I've mentioned before as we've gone through passages in John, this whole section of John, and when I say this section, I'm talking chapters 3 through 12, so 10 chapters, 
is really all about John exploring what it means to believe. He uses this word more than anywhere else in the New Testament, believe. And he uses it in a lot of different ways. Always the same word, he can mean different things with it. This all starts at the very end of chapter 2. Where he says in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. When John says many believed on him and then Jesus did not entrust himself, that's the same word. He's using the same word in both of those places. So he's effectively saying they believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in them. Because he knew the truth of what was in their hearts and what their belief actually was in. And it wasn't in him. It wasn't in what he declared himself to be. It wasn't in his message. The, the next 10 chapters are all about exploring what that means and that difference between this, this believe, this spurious faith that you find in these Jews time and time and time again, and the true saving faith that leads to eternal life. It starts in chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes under cover of darkness. And can't understand, even with all of his knowledge, what Jesus is saying when he speaks new covenant truths from the Old Testament. John launches from that encounter into his most famous passage on God's offer of salvation through faith in Jesus. Believe and you will have eternal life. After chapter 4, you look at chapter 5, Jesus takes the initiative to heal a man And there is zero indication in that passage that that man had any kind of belief in Jesus. Jesus approaches this man. He does not approach Jesus. Even after the miracle is done, there's no indication of faith from this man. And that same miracle in chapter 5 is the thing that starts the conflict with the Jewish leaders, starts them seeking to kill him. And Jesus calls out their lack of faith and their understanding. In chapter 6, you have the crowds of thousands following Jesus, who Jesus feeds, who flock after him as after he leaves, seeking more miracles. He calls them out for wanting more bread. And missing the point of what his miracles were supposed to be showing. And the message that he was proclaiming. And after that lengthy chapter, see how that chapter ends. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They did not believe. So you go into chapter 7 and 8, where Jesus is again at the temple. He's teaching. He's stirring up trouble for the Pharisees and leaders. The people are finding him compelling, but they're having their own disagreements, unsure what to do with him. The Jewish leaders are refusing to acknowledge the truth of any of his teaching. In fact, he's so compelling that in chapter 8, we see that as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And that's talking specifically about people who are closely tied to the Jewish leadership. It says that they believed in him. But by the end of that same chapter, 
Those same people are picking up stones to stone him. As he says, before Abraham was, I am. So there's a distinction that John makes between believing and believing. He uses the same word, but he means different things. And the context dictates for us what he's pointing to. Chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind, who very clearly does believe. But the blind Pharisees will not accept the truth of what Jesus has done and who his actions reveal him to be. And again in chapter 10, the Jewish leaders are struggling amongst themselves with some perhaps believing, such as Nicodemus. But again, by the end of that chapter, they end up seeking to kill him as they cannot accept what he is telling them. In chapter 11, Lazarus is raised, the greatest miracle Jesus had ever done in his mystery, in his ministry. And the Jews' response is to finalize their plans to kill him. And chapter 12 ends with a condemnation for everyone who had seen what he did, had heard what he said, and yet had not believed. So by and large, these chapters focus on the false belief of the Jews that isn't really belief. That same belief that's described at the end of chapter 2. They believed, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That isn't to say that there aren't examples of true saving faith amongst the Jews. But those examples serve to highlight even more the false belief of so many others amongst God's people. But in the middle of all those chapters, indeed near the beginning of it, we find chapter 4. We see an example of true saving faith. And we see it from a very unexpected source. We see belief not in Jesus' signs. Granted, he, he does reveal a bit of his divine nature in his knowledge, but there's no indication of miracles being done here like there were in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. It's just his message. The Samaritan people urge him, a Jewish rabbi, to stay with them for two days. And many more believe because of his word, because of what he says, the people respond. So why does John do this? Why does he put this here? John has a message, I think, for both the evangelist and the evangelized in this story. He's including a picture of true belief from these Samaritans to specifically emphasize and shame the false belief of the Jews. As he says in the prologue of the gospel, he came to his own people and his own people received him not. This story is here to highlight that fact. His gospel is all about declaring that Jesus is indeed the Christ and time and again the Jews couldn't see it, but the Samaritans can a people with a twisted, distorted, incomplete view of God and his promises is able to clearly and rightly see who Jesus is, the Savior of the world. And yet with all the advantages the Jews had, those with all the knowledge, those like Nicodemus who was the teacher of Israel, they either can't or won't acknowledge the truth that is plainly put before them. 
Time and again, we see the Jews either latching onto the miracles themselves and not hearing the message that accompanies them, or we see increasingly incredible miracles. A man born blind healed, a man dead for three days raised from the dead. Things only God can do, and they attribute them to Satan. In the midst of it all, an outcast, unclean Samaritan woman believes. And not just her, but her whole village, her whole town and the surrounding area with her. So to the evangelized, John is saying, and he will repeat this throughout his gospel, your lineage, your birth, your position, your perceived holiness, your understanding, your closeness to God, all of that counts for nothing in terms of salvation. This person can be saved. This person who has none of that, has no standing before God, is not one of God's people, is not part of the lineage of God, is an outcast amongst her own people, this person can be saved. Let me go back to that, that idea of this woman as unclean, because this is, this is another detail in here that I think is really important to see. Normally, for a Jew to interact with, with the Samaritan woman in this way would make them unclean, but that's not what happens in this story. In fact, that is something that never happens with Jesus. He cannot be made unclean. Instead, when he comes into contact with something that is unclean, he makes the unclean clean. That's exactly what's happening in this story. That's the picture John is trying to paint here of Jesus making the unclean clean. There's a story in the Synoptic Gospels found in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8. In it is a sick woman who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years, as it's described. This is speaking of some form of menstrual issue and one that would have made this woman perpetually unclean for that entire time. She would have been unable to participate in temple worship, unable to participate in synagogue worship, any of the rhythms of normal Jewish life she would have been excluded from. She had sought doctors, she had sought help from all sorts of sources with no relief. She would be ostracized, outcast, kept at a distance for fear of contamination. But a single touch of Jesus' robe, something that would normally make him unclean, instead purifies her. Why do the Gospels so often see Jesus interacting with sinners while the Jewish leaders are on the side fretting and and complaining about him doing so? It's because he actually purifies any and all uncleanness he comes in contact with. He cannot be defiled. He can eat with sinners and not come away unclean. No sin can ever overcome the holiness of God. And to engage with and have the faith to touch him, as that as the sick woman did, or the faith to go out and collect her whole town as the Samaritan did, It leads to the removal of any and all uncleanness. It leads to being purified. As I've said, John speaks of belief in this gospel a lot. 
But that belief isn't always saving faith. He uses the same word everywhere, but he doesn't always mean the same thing. So I ask you, what is your belief in? Are you believing as so many of the Jews did in their background? For us, that would be being raised in the church or being raised in a Christian home. I am saved by proximity or by birthright. Are you believing in a decision or a prayer that you made in your past? Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but that's not the root. That's not where our belief should be placed, where our faith is placed. Are you believing in a change of behavior, acting outwardly better? Are you believing in pleasant circumstances God has provided? This is evidence that I am saved. God has given me good things. Or are you believing in a get-out-of-hell-free card? Just trusting for another miracle from Jesus when you die with no impact on the here and now. Those all fall into that category of spurious belief, false faith that John describes. That's the belief that when faced with hard truths, as we see in John 6, or hard circumstances, or the cost of following Christ, turns away, can't accept the truth. But if your belief is in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, as the one who is providing for and securing your salvation now and forever, the one who brings eternal life, not just in the future, but brings the experience of it right now, that is the belief of true faith. That is the belief that John wants us to have, that his gospel calls everyone who reads it to come to. Whoever believes will have eternal life. That is the message of John's gospel. But what about for the evangelist? What about for those who do believe, who God has now called to share this gospel message? Well, interestingly, this story is, one, is the first gospel declaration outside of the Jews by Jesus himself. This message of salvation comes from Jesus himself outside of the Jewish people for the first time. There's a foreshadowing here in Jesus' actions of what would happen later in Acts when the gospel begins to go to the Gentiles. And Peter's told in Acts 10.15, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. As I've said, the Samaritans were the epitome of unclean from the Jewish perspective. And yet this early in his ministry, before the synoptic gospels even begin their records of his ministry, Jesus is planting the seed of the outreach from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's some who speculate that this town is even the same city of Samaria that Philip goes to in Acts 8 as he brings the gospel in there and has an incredible response as the region is, seems to be primed and ready for the coming of the gospel. So there's this picture, this prefiguring of the gospel going to the nations. As you look through the rest of the gospels, Jesus' focus is very much on the Jews. 
But this one story from the beginning of his ministry makes it clear that he is aware of the spread of that gospel beyond the Jews. That this is a gospel for the world. There's a further message here for the evangelist. And this is in the interaction he has with his disciples in verses 34 through 38. The disciples come back with food for Jesus, which he refuses, saying he has food they don't know about and, of course, confuses them. The confusion of the disciples is a common theme in John's gospel. Uh, It comes up a lot. They miss a lot of things. Um, Bless them for their faith. Uh, Really good example of that, actually, is we're speaking of belief. The end of chapter 6, where everyone's gone away from Jesus, he turns to his disciples and says, Are you going to go too? And Peter says, Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about, that John is talking about in his gospel. Peter didn't understand any better than anybody else did what Jesus was talking about when he said, You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood in, in John chapter 6. Peter didn't understand that any better than anyone else. But he did believe that what Jesus was saying had to be true. And it was those words that he was going to cling to and try to figure out. There wasn't anywhere else to go. So the disciples are confused here as well. But he explains that the food he has, what nourishes him, what sustains him, is doing the will of the Father. Jesus doing the will of the Father is a huge theme throughout John's Gospel, and one that we will come back to, Lord willing, as uh, uh, we will revisit it multiple times as as we travel through John, uh, if I preach in the future. But for now, that will is fundamentally Jesus revealing God to man. That is his purpose and his role in coming. He is the final and supreme revelation of God to man. God is most fully revealed in the person of Jesus. And interestingly, that is exactly what the disciples are going to be asked to do. They're going to be asked to take up that role of Jesus in revealing God to the world, in the person of Jesus Christ, by declaring him through the help of the Spirit. It becomes very clear in the, uh, in the Last Supper discourse, where Jesus gives his last, uh, his last commands and his last interaction with his disciples before his death. But at this moment in John chapter 4, He's pointing them to the crowds that are coming from Samaria. And he's saying, look, the fields are ripe for harvest. He's talking about the people. He's saying the time has come. He's not asking them to go out and prepare the ground and plant the seeds and do all the hard work while those seeds grow and watering and nurturing and all that. He's saying it's harvest time. Centuries, millennia of groundwork has already been laid The seeds are planted. They've been growing for centuries. And now Messiah is here. The prophets, the people of God, the entirety of the Old Testament has been preparing for this moment. Messiah has come. So get to reaping. 
There's a harvest out there, and it is plentiful, and it is bountiful. We, as the reapers, are at the tail end of the process. We're just the ones that gather the harvest. But ultimately, his point in this is that we are intimately connected with the sowers that came before. And we all, as the people of God, as the people involved in the redemptive plan of God throughout all of history, are connected and will rejoice together. This is somewhat similar to Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about himself and Apollos and anyone else that was involved in the evangelism in Corinth had different roles, but there wasn't one person who was responsible for all of it, and that all of them could rejoice together because of the bountiful harvest that had been made. Jesus Jesus is going even a bit beyond that, though, to say that everything that led to him So all of scripture, all of the prior prior revelation, all of history is ultimately the sowing and the pre-work that has led to the now present time of the messianic harvest. The ushering in of the messianic age now that Messiah has come. We join with all who came before in laying that groundwork. Sowing the seed of salvation and together with them in Jesus the Messiah, through whom all are saved, we will rejoice together over the harvest that is gathered. There is an encouragement here for the evangelist that there is a harvest ripe for plucking. God has prepared it. It is ready. That doesn't mean that everyone you you share the gospel with will believe. And that doesn't mean it happens immediately every time. But there is a harvest out there. It's not our job to go through all the work of of planting the seeds, making them grow. God is responsible for all of that and will accomplish so that all who are his will believe. So if there is anyone here who doesn't believe this morning... I say to you what John says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. If God can save this woman and her people, he can most definitely save you. His salvation is not just for those who are good enough, for those who look a certain way, come from a certain background. It is for anyone. And for those of you who do believe, take to heart that he has promised a harvest. Again, that doesn't mean that all will be saved who we present this gospel to, but it does mean that God will bring to fruition and completion all of the work that came before. So that there is a guarantee that all who are his will indeed be saved. So speak boldly confident in the work of God to save those who he has prepared this salvation for. And look forward to that day when we as God's people will rejoice with all of God's people who came before us. Old Testament, New Testament, all the way back to the very beginning. 
and rejoice at this glorious picture, this glorious work that God has done in saving and creating a people for himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for this story. Father, it is difficult for us in our context to see some of these details of the cultural context that this is happening in. But we have many equivalents. We can understand this kind of divide. Father, help us to rejoice at Jesus bridging this divide, crossing over taboo lines to bring the gospel message of salvation to this woman and her people. Thank you for all the times that we see in acts of of those taboo lines being broken again and again as the Gentiles are brought into the church of God. Thank you that we are beneficiaries of that. And help us, Father, to approach the salvation of God in the same way. To extend this offer to anyone and everyone. Help us to remember that it's not us who decides who is saved, it is you. And our job is to simply be your mouthpiece, proclaiming your gospel. In the same way that Jesus revealed you to man, we are now to reveal him. Help us to do that boldly and with confidence, knowing that you have a harvest ready for us to be gathered. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who is unsure of salvation, feels that maybe their sin outweighs your grace. To look at this woman, to look at this story and see that there is no depth of sin or divide or uncleanness that can keep us from the love of God. That in the person of Jesus, that gap has been bridged. That he comes to us because we cannot Go to him. And in so doing, rather than being defiled by our presence, we are made holy by his. Help us to rejoice in that fact and help us to rejoice in this process, this painful and often messy process of sanctification where you are making us into the image of Jesus Christ. You are cleansing and purifying us. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the message that it proclaims. Help us to rejoice at it. And I pray, Father, that we as your people can be a people that proclaim this gospel loudly and clearly for all of the world to hear. That whoever believes would have eternal life. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.